Good morning. It is great to see you guys here this morning. Does it does it feel like spring's coming? It does, doesn't it? That's pretty nice. Did you guys know next week is the daylight savings uh, move? Oh, isn't that awesome? How do I hurt some people like not like that? That's fantastic. Uh, I'm glad that you guys are here today. I'm glad to be here today, and I'm excited about uh, getting into this morning's uh, message as we continue the series, uh, Shadows. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to invite you guys uh, to join with me um, for a special prayer. Today at, uh, Lake, at Mercy Hill Church in Lake Country uh, is Jonathan Mosier's last Sunday there, uh, taking, the, uh, taking the lead uh, teaching role at the church, and uh, we're transitioning Kevin into that role. And so I just want to take an opportunity this morning for us as a congregation to, to lift them up in prayer um, and just ask that God's blessing would be upon them, that God's, that God's peace would be there, that there would be a sense of purpose and, and, and direction that the Holy Spirit brings uh, even now. So would you guys join with me this morning as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you as the body of Christ, lifting up our brothers and sisters as they venture into uh, the next season, the next chapter in the life of the church, and the life of Jonathan and Jessica and their children. Father, we just pray right now for a special blessing on that family, on Jonathan and Jess and their two little ones. We just pray, Father, that you would continue to give them peace, you would continue to give them provision and direction uh, for the next uh, phase in their life. Father, we lift up uh, Kevin and Amy and the kids as they transition into this new role, uh, that you would give them a special peace and a special anointing a special understanding as they as they venture out and grow themselves into a new, in this new chapter. And Father, we pray for the people of the church there, that there would be a a, a sense of direction and p- purpose and a sense of peace that comes over them, that you would bind them together and you would bind us all together even more uh, more directly, even more intimately, Father, as Mercy Hill Church. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done uh, through this church. And we, Lord, we rejoice in what you're going to continue to do as we move forward. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, as we continue um, into the last chapter in the book of Hebrews, uh, we can kind of see the end of it, right? We kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so, uh, as with most of our series, is, um, uh, if you've enjoyed this series, you're a little sad. If, if you haven't, you're glad it's about to be over. Um. But I want to remind you as we get to this, the context of the letter. Now, we've talked, we've talked throughout about the purpose of the letter, the, the intent of the letter, that the letter has, has been meant to, um, to show the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that the work of Jesus Christ is supreme, that the new covenant that was, that was, that was brought by the work of Jesus Christ is, 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 um, uh, is over the Old, Test, Old Covenant, that the work of Jesus Christ, that he himself is transcendent, that he is over, that he is better, that he is the better prophet, that, that he is the better leader, that he is the better sacrifice, that he is the better high priest. But I want to remind you this morning of the context of the letter. The book that is written, uh, the, the, the author who wrote the book of Hebrews was writing it in particular, with a particular intent, with a particular audience in mind. He was writing it to the church. He was writing it to the church. The audience of this book is an assembled church. In other words, it's written to believers who participate in the body of Christ. The author of Hebrews was looking out and he was seeing a group of people who were following after Christ, who were assembled as the church, and he wanted to give them encouragement. He wanted to give them instruction. I'm bringing this up because um, because uh, because uh, the, the passage we're about to read, the text we're about to read, emphasizes the functioning of the church. It emphasizes how the local assembly works, how the local assembly functions, that the gathered body of Jesus Christ has a particular way in which we are to live, in which we are supposed to act, in which we are supposed to interact. When I look at this text particularly, it gives this beautiful framework for how a church ultimately will be healthy. And I think, it's inf- I think it's important for us to focus in on this because the question we have to have as the church even today is, how can we be healthy? How do we function well? 
How do we function in a way in which we reflect what it is God has called us to be as the church? I'm going to focus on five verses uh, particularly because they most directly draw the blueprint for what um, it means to be a healthy church. Now, now this conversation this morning is only going to be important or it's only going to be interesting to you if at some point you purpose in your heart that the church is not something you attend, it's something you're a part of. It's only going to make a difference in your life if you get to the point in which you realize that I need to make a sincere commitment to the body of Christ, to the community of Christ. And when you do that, you're going to see how the author of Hebrews walks us into this this beautiful community that is meant to reflect the beautiful nature of Jesus Christ himself. So I want you to start with me in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. I want you to jump down with me to verse 17. Obey your leaders and, and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have, an, who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Would you guys pray with me? Please ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to go to, to that which is inspired by the Holy Spirit for the direction we need in following you. Father, I pray that each one of us this morning will allow your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, to touch our minds, to touch our spirits, and change us. Father, I pray that your word would bear fruit in our hearts today. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever heard the word ekklesia? You ever hear the word ekklesia? Um, Ekklesia is an interesting word. Uh, and I want to be clear on this. Uh, it is pronounced ecclesia. It is not ecclesia. Jonathan, uh, Jonathan John uh, Pap likes to pronounce it ecclesia just to drive me crazy. It is ecclesia. Uh and, and this is a Greek word that's found in the New Testament, and it's translated directly as church. Um, uh, so anytime you, you you go through the through through the New Testament, you read, and it says church, the word being translated there is ecclesia. And I, but I want to draw your guys' attention to, um, I want to draw your guys' attention to the definition, the, the, the various usage, usages of ecclesia in classic Greek literature. Because the, the, the definitions provide for us a, a really important context. First, you have to understand that the most, the most common use of the word and how it is most often translated as church, means an assembly, or more directly, a, a gathering of people. Uh, here's, here's the first couple definitions of ecclesia. A, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, an assembly. An assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. Now, I point this out because... So often we read this idea of the church and we we dismiss the idea that central to the biblical understanding of the church is the gathering, is the coming together. When you step step into the New Testament and you take a look at the Greek word that is translated church, central to that understanding is that we come together, that we engage with one another, that we're in close proximity, that we are here to encourage, to challenge to share. The church gathers. If you're going to look at the definition as it relates to the, to the word of God coming out of the Greek language, you have to understand that central to this definition is that we come together. To be the church means that you are gathering as the church. 
within, within a particular structure, with, with a context for a specific reason. This is being ecclesia. One commentator I read went to great lengths in his attempt to explain the Greek context of the concept ecclesia. And I think it, it might either clarify or maybe confuse you, one of the two. Ecclesia, the Greek word translated church in the King James Version, already existed in the Greek language before the New Testament was written under the inspiration of God by its human author. In Greek literature, it means assembly. Historians report that it means assembly. An ecclesia an was only an assembly. For instance, when an ecclesia wasn't assembled, no one wrote that an ecclesia might not be an assembly because the people who did assemble were not assembled seven days a week and 24 hours a day. An ecclesia must assemble because it was an assembly. If it didn't assemble, it wouldn't be an assembly. When it assembled, it was an assembly. Men who didn't assemble were not an assembly. Make sense? I honestly think um, I honestly think it does not overstretch the point to replace the translation of ecclesia as assembly with the word used in our Bible, most often church, um, when reading the statement. And, and, and I want to read this, I want to read a portion of the statement by doing that, because I think it might bring some more clarification. An ecclesia must assemble because it was a church. If it didn't assemble, it wouldn't be a church. When it assembled, it was a church. Men who didn't assemble were not a church. Does it make more sense now? You see, the church assembles. The church comes together. The church gathers. And we gather for a purpose with an intent under a structure. There is the idea of us sharing with one another, being with one another, and having relationship with one another. You cannot say you're a part of the church if you refuse to assemble as the church. I say this because I want you guys to understand that the coming together is central to the function of being a church. But, but, I, but I also want you to hear something else about the Greek word ekklesia. The primary definitions are, are the ones that, that we've emphasized. People gathered, a public assembling of people. But, but there is, there's another definition that sometimes seems more appropriate in application to what happens in the church. To what happens when the church gathers. The definition goes like this. Any gathering or throng of men assembled tumultuously. Uh, that's, the polite, that's the polite way of saying a mob. In fact, the word ecclesia is used in that way in the book of Acts, chapter 19, where it literally describes a mob. It says this. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the ecclesia, or mob, was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out in one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a mob scene. And that sounds actually a lot like some of the churches I've been a part of particularly at the annual business meetings. How many of you guys ever know, you know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to that? There's something about ecclesia that transforms from being a mob to being a sacred assembly. There's something that has to take place that, that changes that idea, that changes that definition. The, the irony that ecclesia, the word we translate for this precious thing we call the church, also means in some contexts a mob, is really interesting. Because whether intended or not, it provides a warning for the direction of the church, the direction that the church can go, unless we are, unless we are committed, 
unless we are committed, unless we are committed to the means by which a gathered group of people can be transformed from a selfish mob to a sacred assembly. And this morning's text, I think, provides a simple roadmap for that transformation. You understand that each one of us, in our own, in our own natural state, in, our own, in, our, in, our, in, in who we are, come into this place every single week with a starting point of our own selfishness. We just do. It tends to be the way we are. And we particularly within our culture and our society, we have fed that idea that this is about me, this is for me. And if I don't get something out of this a certain way or if I don't feel certain things, if I don't receive certain this or that, then I don't want to be a part of this assembly. We have got to look at the call that we receive from the word of God and have that transformed in us. Because God wants in this place a sacred assembly. Not a mob of people just coming together, but a sacred assembly that reflects the beauty of Jesus Christ. I believe this morning's text provides every key element of the church structure that we must be committed to, to transform us from a mob into a sacred assembly. The first element is this. Faithful living from its leaders. The launching point of the author of Hebrews instruction of the church, which provides the elements that moves us into being a sacred assembly, to, to being that, that true church of Jesus Christ, for, to, to being, to being what, what Jesus Christ wanted us to be from the very beginning, what he laid out for us to be from the very beginning, are leaders that live and exemplify faithfulness. Look at what it says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their, of their, of their way of life and imitate their faith. He tells us here that we need to remember your leaders. The leaders who are bringing you the word of God. Remember them. And then he says, consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. What does he lay out? He says, when we come together as the body, we come together as ecclesia, we come together as the gathering, there are people who have been established as leaders in that place to pastor you, to lead you. And I want you to look to them. I want you to see the life that they're living. And I want you to follow after that. For this to work, for members of the church to follow after, to learn from, to imitate in a way that reflects Jesus Christ, the leaders must be first setting the standard. That's self-evident, isn't it? That, that if, the, if, if you're going to follow after, if you're going to follow leaders, if the instruction is to follow after, you, you've got to be following people who are being faithful. If the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to call the congregation to imitate leaders, then those leaders must be setting a true example of Christian faith. Because if they are not, then the leaders are leading them down a path of their own unfaithfulness. For the church to work, there has to be leaders who are faithful. So the first element required for, for an ecclesia to be a transformed from a selfish mob to a sacred assembly are identifying and following leaders whose faithfulness qualify them to be leaders worthy to follow. And this faithfulness means an adherence to godly faith in their living. It says, consider their way of life and imitate it. It's really interesting because it, it, what there, it's even the, the statement even goes a little bit beyond that because it, it gives this broad idea of what it means to follow them. He says, he says, consider their way of life and the outcome of their life, right? It says the outcome of their life. You know what the outcome of most of their lives were? Death. The, the, the calling here is this intense calling to follow after leaders who were so faithful 
faithful even unto death, and that that was the same calling for the congregation. There is this call to follow after leaders. And, and so when you look at the church leadership, and, and, the, and the biblical I- identity for the structural leadership of the church is pastors or elders, and, and to some extent deacons. When you look at that church leadership, do you see people who are practicing lives of faith worthy of imitation? This becomes the very first place where a church will either be healthy or unhealthy. Do leaders exemplify the life to which we are all called? Not being perfect, but in their imperfection, following hard after Jesus Christ. Faithful to Him. We're all all broken, we're all imperfect, but the standard that is set for those who will lead the church are those who set before them the image of Jesus Christ and follow hard after Jesus Christ. I could spend the rest rest of the morning and, and at least two more mornings framing this by giving you the qualities to look for in, in true shepherds, those who are setting the pace for the health of a church. But whatever I would say would be identified by this. These leaders live and minister in the image of Jesus Christ. They see the ministry of Jesus Christ. And they choose to follow that pathway. They choose to follow that direction. See, we who have been charged with shepherding shepherding the people of God, we're just under shepherds. The Word of God makes this really clear. The shepherd of the church, the great shepherd of the church, the good shepherd of the church is Jesus Christ. And he has established under shepherds. Do you know what that tells me about my role as an under-shepherd? He's my model. I, I, have, I, I, have to, I have to do my very best to translate him as shepherd to you. I have to do my very best to, to, to pursue hard after him, to have, have the character that he revealed, the, the ministry that he did. This is our calling. And as a result, the elements expressed by Christ in his gospel ministry must be present as we minister his gospel towards his flock. Now again, I could talk about this for hours. There are so many elements of ministry expressed by Jesus Christ that we are called to emulate and that are really important to measure ourselves against. But I want to briefly identify three of them. Because I think these are standards that you as members of the congregation have to look at and say, is this what I see in my leaders? The first one I want to highlight is a willingness to model intimacy in relationship. It is is impossible when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ not to be struck by the level to which the ministry of Christ was embodied in stepping in. That this intimacy was a part of it. It is impossible not to be struck by the level to which the ministry of Christ, as he embodied the gospel work, is tied to intimacy in relationship. Take it from the very beginning. Take it from the very start. Jesus Christ, as God, is, is with God in heaven. And John chapter 1 says this, And the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us. He stepped into our world. He stepped into our brokenness. He stepped into our darkness. This is the very very essence of gospel ministry. That Jesus Christ dwelt among us, walked with us. The Word of God says, was in all ways tempted like we were. This is, not, this is not a gospel work that holds those that he is trying to minister to at arm's length. He stepped into our world. And did you notice how he stepped into our world? You look at the ministry of Jesus Christ for those three years, and people walked with him, didn't they? Go to, go to the first chapter, second chapter of the book of John one of these days, and go read through it and, 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 and see the calling of the disciples to himself. The, the, the very, the very, the very first one of the very first disciples he calls. You, you read the account. 
And basically the guy says to him, so where are you staying? And Jesus says, well, come, stay with me. And it says, and he spent the night with Jesus. Like the first day. Like the first day. Met him the first time. Come on, let's go. Let's spend time together. And then you walk, you watch as he walked every single day with the disciples with him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They slept with him. Whatever he was doing, they were doing. He brought them near. He brought them close. You see, one of the marks of being a a, a true shepherd of Jesus Christ is drawing people near to you, opening your life to them. And there's, and there's real reasons for that. There's real good reasons for that. First and foremost, it's where you begin to model what it is to follow Jesus. See, see the, the passage here says, I want you to mark the lives of faith, those who live faithfully, right? And I want you to follow them. Well, how can you know if someone lives faithfully if you don't know the life that they live? The only contact I have with members of the congregation is I walk up here, I preach, and I walk out, and I lock myself in my office, and I'm never around people. It is opening up your heart so that you, and opening up your life so that people can see who you are. It allows you to provide vulnerability so that people can see you in your brokenness, in your hurtingness, in your loss, and how you manage that. You know what else it does? It instills deeply in people what you preach because they see that you practice it also. Shepherds who distance themselves from their flock with which they have been entrusted reveal that they are more in love with the title and the work than they are the sheep. Distance prevents the flock from effectively understanding and considering the life of faith their leader lives. This has been something that's been important at Mercy Hill Church from the very beginning. And I mean that sincerely. There are people who are here within the first year, and they can talk about the time we had the barbecue in my backyard. And it was like four people there. <laughs> Not as good as truth. Seriously. Like four people there. And we have constantly, throughout our ministry, decided we need to draw people near to us. We need to draw people near to us. We need to draw people near to us. So that's part of what, what, I've, what I've done, what Kevin's done. Now as the church grows, there's a lot of you who are sitting here. You, I may not even know your name. But this is us imitating that. This is us following in that footsteps. Guys, this is a part of my life. This is a part of who I am. There are people here who are at my house on Christmas Eve because they have nowhere else to go. There are people who are in our house eating with us. There are people in our house on Thanksgiving. There are people, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in any way to say, Look at Tommy. But what I'm saying is this has to be the heart of a church. This has to be who we are, that that you mark this and you say, in your life, you are vulnerable. In your life, you're drawing people near to you. And you're helping set a standard that others can follow. The second element of ministry in the image of Christ that must be present, I believe, is a consistent practice of humility and servanthood. I almost hesitate to bring this up because everyone has, has their own opinion of what true sacrifice and service for the other guy should be. And as a pastor, you've, you found yourself, I found myself dozens of times over the years saying, well, pastor doesn't do this, so therefore he's not that. But this is so essential to what it means to be a minister of the gospel, what it means to set a standard for people to follow that you have to bring it up. If ministers do not have the heart of servanthood and they desire more to be served than to serve others, there is nothing about Jesus alive in their ministry. I mean that sincerely. I, there, I, there was a, I remember it's, uh, uh, Josh Doss, our pastor down in Janesville, teaching pastor down in Janesville, Told a story of a pastor that, that he knew and had been a part of, and he came in new to his new to the church, and and he gathered all of his leaders together, and he had he had rewritten kind of the 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 ministry manual for the elder or for the for the deacons and the the ushers, and so for the ushers he was going through this is what we this is what, this is what your responsibilities are, this is what your responsibilities are, this is what your responsibilities are, 
And he rewrote them, and one of the things in there, he says, when it snows, it's your responsibility to make sure that you get the snow off the pastor's car. And he's sitting there with the, with the, with the, with the ushers, and, and like they get to that, and they all start laughing because they think it's a joke. Like he's, just, he's kidding, and he's dead serious. And he says, well, you need to learn how to serve. Oh, do you? Jesus Christ makes it very, very clear as, as he gathered the disciples to him what their calling was. Mark chapter 10, he says this. Jesus called them to him and he said, said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How can we say that we are the under-shepherds reflecting the great shepherd when we ourselves are not willing to serve? This is the responsibility and this is the standard. Now listen, that doesn't mean that, uh, that unless I make it my responsibility to sweep and mop and set up chairs, I'm not being a servant. Because God, God's given me different responsibilities based on my calling and gifting at this time. But I can tell you every single task that is done in this church, from mopping to setting up chairs to sweeping to cleaning toilets to watching the children, is something I've done in the history of Mercy Hill Church. And I don't say that in the past tense. It is also something that I'm willing to do today. I've never gotten above that point, And I mean that sincerely. I set up chairs around here all the time. There's nobody here watching. I sweep up. I clean up all the time. Now, again, I don't say that. I'm not saying that to say what a great guy Tommy is. I say that to say that, that what I'm telling you, I sincerely mean with everything that is in me. My calling by Jesus Christ is to serve his people in whatever capacity that means. And if you're part of a church or you're part of a lead, and you see leadership above you, or around you that is unwilling to serve, then you see you're seeing something that is counter to the calling of shepherd. A true shepherd is never above serving in whatever way is needed. And the third element of ministry in the image of Jesus that I think is important to hold out is a commitment to pursuing, hearing, and delivering the heart of the Father. Without question, Jesus' primary desire was to know the heart of the Father, speak the truth given him by the Father, and do the work of the Father. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, The Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. In John chapter 8, he says, I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And in chapter 12, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. This has to be the heart of all shepherds, that the agenda we set is not our agenda, but the agenda of the Father. And the only way, the only way you can do that is by following Jesus' example of pursuing the heart of the Father and not the approval of a crowd. The consistent, the constant life that Jesus Christ lived where he would withdraw and spend time with the Father, where he would withdraw and spend time in prayer, where he would withdraw and spend time fasting so that he might know the heart of the Father. There's this really telling account of Jesus in which he heals a leper. And he, he, he brings this leper, this leper comes to him, he lays hands on him, he heals them, and the word of this gets out, right? And it starts spreading everywhere, and people, people hear about it. And it says, they, it, it creates this great stir, and, and, and the crowds were, were coming to see him. But I want you to hear the account of what happened. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Now hear this. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
I want you to hear this. The structure of that, the structure of that sentence, the, the way in which it is written, is not simply in an event time, at one time. It's saying that consistently the life of Jesus was to withdraw from the crowd and spend time with the Father in prayer. Why? Because he needed to know the heart of the Father. He needed to know what the Father wanted him to say. Now, I've been around a lot of preachers, and I've met very few who were, with, who were willing to withdraw from the crowd. Most preachers I know are working for the crowd to get the crowd. And when the crowd is there, you stay there. You don't withdraw. But you see, what Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ exemplified, what Jesus Christ calls us to, is the habit of withdrawing from the crowd to pray and hear the heart of the Father. The shepherd that is setting the pace for the sheep is the shepherd whose only allegiance is to the crowd of one. To the crowd of God, the Father. To know what he wants us to know. To say what he wants us to say. To serve the way he wants us to serve. It is a shepherd who is more interested in knowing the heart of the Father and speaking the truth of the Father than gathering people to himself. And even having said that, it leads us to the second element that transforms the mob of Ecclesia to the sacred assembly of Ecclesia, and that is this. The consistent doctrine of grace and its teaching. The first element was faithful living by the leaders, and the second is consistent doctrine and the teaching. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The author of Hebrews goes from following leaders that have a faithful example to holding fast to sound doctrinal teaching that emphasizes not a doctrine of law, but the doctrine of grace given through the teaching and the work of Jesus Christ. And I want to point out something else before we talk about that idea of the grace. It's interesting to discover what he says in verse 8 as he leads into this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Isn't that interesting? He leads into the instruction about doctrine with the declaration that Jesus Christ is immutable. That it never changes. It's always the same. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore... Embrace, embrace the doctrine of grace and not strange teachings. You see, you see the, the, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ that is bathed in the grace message is always the message. It never changes. And the moment in which the message changes, you get away from what it takes to be the church. He leads us directly from the immutability, the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ to the importance of the unchanging doctrine of grace. You see, he, 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 gives, he, gives the, he gives the contrast here. You see, the doctrine of grace is simply this. By grace are you saved through faith, not of your own works, lest anyone should boast. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, not by the things we do. He, he contrasts it here with the idea of the food laws. He's saying people tell you you have to eat this, you have to eat this, you have to eat this, you have to eat this to be clean. And he's saying it's, we, don't, we don't earn our salvation through that. We don't, we don't gain our salvation by the things that we do or we don't do. We gain it by embracing Jesus Christ as Savior, by his work on the cross, by that we are saved. A church that is built around the do's and don'ts of salvation, is not a church in the classic sense, in the biblical sense, in the way the Word of God describes it. If you're a part of a church and that church is telling you, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do that, and if you don't do those things, then you're not really a Christian, then you're not really in a church. This is what he's saying. So for the church to be the church... It has to be rallied around the message of grace. It has to be rallied around the work of grace. It has to be rallied around the gospel of grace. This is the foundation upon which the church is built. And it will find its true stability. 
He's saying don't move away from the, from the grace work of Jesus Christ, which transforms us. And it's interesting because our basic inertia drives us into our own, into our own works. It drives us into me having to be good, me having to do what's right, me taking control of it. And that's why I think he brought it in and said, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He saves us the same. He redeems us the same. He keeps us the same. The church will only be the church that Christ establishes, a sacred assembly, when we are assembling around the grace and gospel work of Jesus Christ. We can never let go of that message. And finally, the third element that transforms the mob of Ecclesia to the sacred assembly of Ecclesia is the humility humility and support from the followers. The first was faithful living by the leaders. The second was consistent doctrine of grace in the teaching. And the third is a congregation of saints committed to humbly support the leadership of the church. In fact, I would say the words that the author of Hebrews uses is even stronger than what I just said. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Do you guys see the words that are there? Obey and submit to your leaders. Those are strong words, aren't they? For a lot of people, those are really scary words, aren't they? In, in, in fact, these are the kinds of words we tend to rebel against. But if the church is to embody and model what it means not to be a mob but a sacred assembly, this is essential in our gathering. Jesus Christ established leaders to shepherd and guide the church. And I mean this, he, he literally did this in his love for the church he, he, he's commissioning, he's, he's calling pastors to care for his sheep, to lead and guide his sheep. And it is a blessing to the body and it is an example to the world when we as sheep willingly come under the leadership in the context of the gathering, the pastors and elders that God has established. Now, Now, I want to remind you guys of the prerequisite for this submission and obedience. The prerequisite for for this submission and obedience is everything I've said thus far. The starting point is when you find shepherds who live live faithfully and embody the gospel example that Christ set and teach the sound doctrine of grace that teaches not their opinion or their desires, but calls you to submit and obey, not to their personal opinions, but to the doctrines of Christ taught in his word, then your reasonable calling is to follow the under-shepherds in whom Christ has entrusted you. That's the standard. Listen, nobody's asking you to submit and obey unhealthy people. Nobody's asking you to submit and obey those who do not follow hard after Jesus. Nobody's asking you to submit and obey those those who are teaching things that are not the Word of God. But the Word of God is calling you, when you find yourself in that community, to be willing to submit and follow. Because there are under-shepherds who have been entrusted with this great task. It is not easy. To be a pastor, and I and I don't say this, and I don't, and I don't say this like, oh, woe is me. It's really hard being a pastor, because I really genuinely believe that I could talk to each one of you and your different responsibilities, whether you go to an office or you go to a school or or you go to a sales floor, and I could ask you whether or not it's hard doing what you do, and I guess and I bet the answer would be yes. And I agree with you. I know what it's like. I've been out there. But there's, there are difficulties of being a pastor that you don't have in other jobs. You see, when you choose to be that shepherd, when you choose to open up your heart and open up your life, 
and embrace that vulnerability to care for and invest in. There are challenges, painful challenges that are built within those relationships. And the word of God is saying when you find a pastor and pastors who are willing to care for you in this way, show your affection for them. Show your faith in them. Show your love for them by making it easier on them. This is the challenge that we have as members of the body of Christ. We can all decide that it's our way, it's our way, it's our way, it's our way, it's our way. And we're not that sacred assembly then. We're just a mob of people. But when leaders make the determination that they are going to follow hard after Jesus, try and minister the way he ministered, hear the voice in the heart of the Father and teach the voice in the heart of the Father, the flock, the congregation, the church has to purpose in their hearts to follow after that. This is the measure when you enter into a community marked by sound gospel teaching and sound gospel leading. It is your responsibility to humbly support and follow. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This obedience or submission is born out of a love for Jesus. It is born out of a love for his church. And it is born out of an affection for the leaders who have committed themselves to being Jesus to the best of their ability. What, what I love about the church, and I'll say this sincerely, what I love about this church is the affection that is exchanged between us all. I love this church, and I love the people of this church. I love every one of you. I, I, have, I am so blessed to be allowed to pastor this church. I mean that with everything that's in me. I, it is a joy to me to be here. And what is, what is, what is evident, what is, what is clear, what is beautiful, is when the members of this congregation share that affection. See, I know I'm loved. Our family knows we're loved by this church. And that's the beauty of the congregation of God. That we are joined together, not by this thing or those deals or what I want or what I get, but we are joined together under the beauty and the umbrella of the gospel of Jesus Christ to share one with another. I'm telling you, if you just attend you're missing out on the church. If you don't participate, if this isn't your community, if you don't invest yourself, whether it is here or another place, you're missing out. Because the beauty of this body, the beauty of the church, is the affection we share under the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what ultimately leads us to be able to obey these commandments. This is what, what ultimately leads us to be able to follow after what he teaches us. The affection that we have one for another under the gospel umbrella. And I want to show you how, how the author of Hebrews appeals to that affection for a support that every pastor covets and is in need of. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to do to act honorably in all things. Now now as you read this you might not you might not get get the context and I want to give you guys the vision from a, from a pastor's perspective on what he's asking for. Because this is a conversation I've had with people on a regular basis uh, throughout the history of Mercy Hill Church. There is a responsibility I have before Jesus Christ. This is where he says that that you'll give an account to stand up here and speak for God. To say, this is what the word of God says. There is a responsibility that we have as elders of this church to determine where God wants us to go and how God wants us to do these things. Listen, the pastor of this church, the senior pastor of this church is not Tommy Orlando. The senior pastor of this church is Jesus Christ. 
and the elder's responsibility as one is to determine the heart of Jesus Christ for his church. Now that's now I don't know if I don't know if you guys understand this, but that is a that is a deep responsibility, and we ca- and I, I I can tell you we carry that burden. I don't want this church to do what Tommy wants. I want it to do what Jesus wants. And the and the statement he makes here is this: Pray for me. Pray for us. Because I can tell you, my conscience is clear. I want to do what Jesus wants us to do. I want to pursue what Jesus wants us to do. But I look in the mirror every single day and I see my own brokenness. I see my own humanity. I see my own sinfulness. And I don't want to miss it. I want to know that we're doing what Jesus wants us to do. So please pray for us. That we might hear the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit leading us in that direction. I've had this conversation with people on a number of occasions over the years where people come up to me and they've said, Pastor Tommy, I don't agree with us doing this. I don't think we should do that. I think that decision was wrong. And I basically give a, a variation on this, of, this, of this declaration to them every single time. And I say, you know what, brother? You might be right. And we might be wrong. But we, we prayed about this and we were given the responsibility to lead this church. And so we're going in that direction. And that's not to say that I didn't miss him. But I want to invite you to pray for me. Because I promise you that my heart is clear. My desire is clear. My conscience is clear. I want to do what Jesus wants us to do. So pray for me. Pray that God would, would correct me. Pray that God would show us the right way. This is the plea of the author of Hebrews. And this is the plea of this pastor. Jesus Christ, in his great wisdom and in his great love, gave us the church. It is so easy for us to despise it. It's so easy for us to toss it aside. And I think as we do that, we insult our Savior. This is what he's given us. And I believe with everything that is in me that when we have leaders, and I'm going to tell you this right now, this isn't about me. This is about the, the, the elders that God has established, the deacons that God has established, the people that are in this church, leading this church. I'm telling you, it is an amazing collection of people. It is an amazing collection of people who love the gospel with everything that is in them and is desiring to do what Jesus Christ leads us to do. He is assembled in this place a great group of people who desire and love Jesus. When you have leadership that seeks that, when you have, when you have the teaching that is the gospel, the grace gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have people who are committed to praying and obeying and submitting one to another, the beauty of his church comes forth. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. That's what I want us to always be. That's where I want us to always go. And so this morning, I want us all to recommit ourselves to that church. I can tell you, and I, I promise you with everything that's in me, I'm, I'm going to do my very best to take my responsibilities as, as, a, as a shepherd of this congregation serious. So that I might live a way in which my life is an example that others can follow. I know that every single guy and every single gal who's in any level of leadership here has that same heart. I'm, I'm telling you now, publicly, before you, the only gospel we preach is the gospel of Jesus Christ, period. It is the grace of Jesus Christ, period. And I'm asking you to recommit yourselves being a part of the community of Christ. I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know how involved you are. I don't know how engaged you are. I don't know if you just attend. I don't know if you just come. But I'm asking you, do not miss out on the beauty of his church by holding it at arm's length. Step in. Be a part. Because what you'll discover is beautiful and amazing.